Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. Marxism is having a moment right now. Higher workloads, stagnating wages, rising costs of living, a new economic crisis every few years, a warming climate, and now almost two years of a worldwide pandemic have all led to a number of people across the world, especially younger people, to self-identify with ideas once thought to be in the dustbin of history. But while people may find Marx's theories helpful for understanding what's happening, turning these interpretations into sustained commitments is another thing. What's more, Marx's works often turn out to be less definitive than is often imagined, giving us rigorous methods of inquiry that we need then to develop and adapt to other fields. Being a Marxist, then, is not simply about adopting a particular series of propositions, but a way of interpreting and engaging with the world. This is one of the animating ideas for my guest today, Ted Stolls, here to discuss his essay collection, Becoming Marxist, Studies in Philosophy, Struggle, and Endurance. While Marx occupies a central place throughout the essays, readers will find engagements with a variety of figures, going back as far as Aristotle and the Apostle Paul, all the way up to the present with essays on Zizek and Deleuze. In between these poles are studies of Hobbes, Spinoza, and Hegel, and many other early modern thinkers. Throughout the essays, Stolz puts Marxist practice in dialogue with philosophy and vice versa, showing us how political struggle demands philosophical inquiry, not simply for the purpose of political and tactical clarity, but for the same reasons people have turned to philosophy for several millennia now. Socrates famously said the unexamined life is not worth living. Kicking off an entire tradition of self examination. It's this tradition Stolls believes activists and organizers ought to draw on today to better understand what it might mean to become Marxist. Ted Stolls holds an MA in religion and a PhD in philosophy. He is an associate professor of philosophy at Cerritos College. He is the co editor of The New Spinoza and has published numerous articles on philosophy, politics, and religion. Ted Stoles, welcome to the New Books Network. Great. Nice to meet you, Stephen. And uh, this is the first time for me to meet you, so I hope you're doing well. Yeah, uh, really looking forward to talking about this. Um, But first question I always like to ask guests, uh, could you maybe introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about what your work and research tends to focus on, what your main areas of interest are? Yeah. I, I presently teach at Cerritos College, which is a small two-year school uh, east of Los Angeles. And most of my students there in uh, philosophy classes are first-generation college students, uh, largely Latinx. And uh, probably over half are uh, women, uh, in fact. So I have a lot of diverse experience teaching. I went to Claremont Graduate School, where I met Warren Montag. and. Uh, many years ago in the 1980s, 
we developed a lifelong uh, relationship, and uh, that led to a translation of a book called The New Spinoza, uh, which was an anthology that I think may be one of the first efforts to publish uh, French philosophy, uh, which was uh, uh, available in the uh, English language. Uh, we did an uh, anthology on Pierre Macheret called In a Materialist Way shortly thereafter. And uh, Warren also introduced me to politics, so I became very engaged in an organization at the time called Workers' Power, later Solidarity, which was very influenced by the experience of the 1960s uh, Wildcat uh, labor movement, uh, Teamsters for Democratic Union. Uh, we had many people came out of the free speech movement at Berkeley in the mid-60s, and that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I'm presently in a member of DSA, which I'm a paper member, not that active politically other than in my labor union, which is the American Federation of Teachers, nationally, locally, the California Federation of Teachers. Uh, in about 10 years ago, I was the union president of my local and lead negotiator and grievance officer at one time. Uh, as I'm getting closer to retirement, my activism has uh, lessened a little bit, but uh, my current projects uh, are still in Spinoza, Marxist theory, um, but I'm uh, increasingly interested in uh, looking at the New Testament from a philosophical and especially Marxist, Marxist standpoint. Um, yet another interest of mine is in American transcendentalism and its fusion overlap with uh, the abolitionist movement. Uh, not many Marxists have looked at uh, Emerson and Thoreau and uh, abolitionism. So that's the latest direction I'm, I'm uh, moving in. Yeah, you've got a lot of really interesting angles to work at. Um, to kick things off with discussing this book, in the first essay, you write that Marxism is not, nor should be, a systematic theory of everything, but instead see Marxism as, quoting Pierre Macheret, a series of simple and concrete problems. So to kick things off, can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, I guess the, the starting point would be how we think of Marxism. Uh, and Marxism for me is uh, going back to an essay that Robin Blackburn published, I don't know, it must be 50 years ago, that uh, Marxism is the uh, theory of working class, or he called it proletarian self-emancipation. Um, so if the focus is on working class self-emancipation, then this is an always unfinished, incomplete project because there will be new crises within capitalism, new movements arise, there are new scientific discoveries, new technological problems that, that occur. Uh, a lot of the interesting work by John Bellamy Foster, uh, Andreas Malm, and others on Marx and uh, eco-socialism uh, are ones I'm interested in, and that has opened up a whole new area of uh, discussion among Marxists, the centrality of the environmental crises that we face. Uh, so if, if, if Marxism were understood as it has been, as a closed system, it would be very close to what uh, you find in, say, Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins as Darwinians, uh, uh, the uh, British... Uh, uh, neuroscientist Stephen Rose has called this ultra-Darwinism. In other words, there's a kind of a to 
totalizing perspective that all interesting problems that arise in human existence or in the natural world can be explained from this overarching standpoint. Uh, I don't think that's true of Darwin. I certainly don't think it's true of, of Marx. But there have been temptations to what we would say are proof texting. Uh, what would Marx's uh, position be on some issue like uh, you know, uh, economic crises or uh, there's a passage in capital that just has to be cashed out in terms of 20th century issues. Uh, Engels' uh, work, Anti-During, was used uh, in that way uh, uh, at one time. Lenin's State and Revolution, which is a conjunctural text, has been used in that way. Um, Trotsky's transitional program has been used in that way. And I, how do I know that? <laughs> because I've, I've known many activists on the left who have appealed to texts. Uh, now, for somebody like me, who grew up in a very devout religious family, it's, it's almost comparable to using classical Marxist texts as people turn to the Bible. You know, certainly you can turn to the Bible for inspiration. Uh, I don't have any doubt about that, uh, but uh, whether that means you can find uh, answers to life's problems uh, without very carefully noting the difference between the original context and the contemporary concern uh, if the Bible can't be used in that, in that way, neither should uh, capital, state and revolution, transitional program, any particular Marxist text. Um, so uh, the, the basic point, I, I guess, for me is that uh, we have to be very modest as, uh, as Marxists and not try to find answers to every question. Um, if Marxism is the theory and practice of working class self-emancipation, there is some overlap with other types of self-emancipation, whether it's of, uh, of women, people of color, uh, movements of national liberation. And uh, so th there's, a, there's a need to be modest and, and somewhat uh, 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 limited in the scope of what Marxism tries to address. One of the philosophical questions you address in the first essay is the materialism and idealism distinction, although you refrain from immediately taking one side and denouncing the other, and instead slowly work towards an understanding of this debate where the two are less opposing camps and instead parts of a larger whole. Can you unpack this approach you have? Yeah, let me uh, step back to how I understand the nature of uh, philosophy. Uh, philosophy is uh, often characterized as consisting of four different uh, uh, aspects uh, or uh, concerns. Metaphysics, which is the study of the nature of reality. Epistemology, which concerns the nature of knowledge. Uh, axiology, the understanding of value and ethics, politics, uh, art, and logic, the study of correct reasoning. And Marxists uh, uh, engage all these four different aspects uh, when they do philosophy. Um, my approach is not to talk about Marxist philosophy per se, but Marxists who are intervening within philosophy as a history of texts and, and traditions and figures from the ancient world up through you know, early modern philosophy to the contemporary world. Now, there's, there's a tendency you find this, and especially in Engels, uh, it's somewhat 
true in, in uh, uh, Lenin's notebooks, philosophical notebooks, uh, even until we get up to Louis Althusser within French Marxism, there was a tendency to lump certain figures as materialists. So you would say, I don't know, Epicurus, Democritus were ancient atomists and therefore materialists, whereas Plato was an idealist. Um, Aristotle is perhaps has a foot in each uh, side of each camp. Um, when you study Spinoza or Hegel or Kant, uh, there's an attempt to classify a philosopher as either a materialist or idealist. This seems to be not a particularly fruitful approach. Um, materialism in the metaphysical sense uh, can be best understood as, as a commitment to the existence of an external world that's prior to our knowledge of it. And in that sense, um, you know, you could say Plato was a realist. He's uh, not a realist in the way that I would identify with, or Spinoza was a realist. Um, and to, to, to call somebody a realist um, is uh, just at a metaphysical uh, level. It's just a way of getting the discussion going. Epistemologically speaking, obviously there's room for ideas, concepts, uh, uh, a mediation of the real world in thought, in theory. And in a way that's in, could be construed an idealist moment within philosophical reflection in the theory of value or axiology when we're talking about um, uh, in moral philosophy what a good life is. Obviously, we're addressing the real world, we hope, and not some imaginary world, but there would be disagreement over what counts as, say, a human right or social justice. Um, and there are idealizing moments to anticipate a, uh, another way of organizing life or society. So I, I, I think in practice, my, my point is that materialism and idealism aren't simply rival camps. You can't say this philosopher is clearly a materialist or idealist, uh, or this text is materialist or idealist. It's always an, an inter, uh, interlinking, overlapping of the two. Uh, Marxists take the materialist side in texts and traditions. Um, take the Bible, for example. You might find most Marxists regarding the Bible as hopelessly idealist, as uh, 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 not particularly uh, relevant to understanding real-world issues. I, I will get into this maybe a little bit later with, with my approach to the Apostle Paul. But um, you know, the Bible talks about economics. The Bible talks about social justice. Uh, uh, the Bible is a highly polemical work uh, uh, that's concerned with real-world issues. So there, there are materialist ways of reading the Bible or other sacred texts, the Quran, Bhagavad Gita, uh, Buddhist sutras. I, so materialism is a, is a way of approaching a text or a tradition. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not uh, as though Marxists can adopt, again, a complete materialist worldview and categorize those texts or traditions or philosophers who are more on the materialist side or the idealist side. It's an ongoing dynamic 
uh, or antagonism that runs through the history of philosophy. Uh, kind of echoing back to the first question I asked you, in one of your essays near the middle of this book, an interlude called An Ethics for Marxism, you started by noting that Marxism, for all its rigor and usefulness, has certain limitations from a philosophical, philosophical perspective in that it doesn't offer much in terms of a philosophical ethic in the way that many philosophers have wrestled with throughout history. Can you speak to this limitation and what it means to say that Marxism needs philosophical supplements in certain places? Right. Well, in, in my political experience, uh, maybe less so today than in the 80s or 90s when I was first getting involved in, in left-wing politics, uh, the claim was always, or not always, but often made that Marxism is a kind of hard-headed, empirical, uh, even value-free science, namely historical materialism or Marxist economics. And there's really no room for fuzzy normative language or, or perspectives. Uh, and yet this, this doesn't really correspond to Marx's own writing. If you, it's not just the early Marx. Uh, 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 you find this in, in Marx of the Manuscripts or the German Ideology. In, in Capital, you find Marx talking about the moral degradation of workers. Uh, but it's not just even at the level of, 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 of language. If we want to live in a more just society, if we are proposing some alternative to the present way of structuring society, simply an analysis or description of what's going on or what is taken to be problematic is, is not enough. You have to motivate people. How you persuade people to join a union, to join a movement, is not just a description of the problem. People typically know what the problem is. What is required is finding ways to give people hope, to encourage them to think beyond their own narrow concerns to broader concerns. Um, why should we struggle for a better world if we're not you're going to be able to motivate people using normative language and concepts that enable us to see the world differently and act accordingly. Um, how do we endure the ups and downs of a political life? I mean, there, there is this problem on the left of burnout, of overcommitment. Um, and I take ethics to mean a concern with sustaining one's commitments, uh, one's loyalties to causes, uh, uh, justifying those causes, uh, continually doing outreach and in low times or down times of political life, finding forms of, um, of, uh, of uh, continuing to reimagine how things can be different, learning, drawing lessons from the past. That all is within the broad category of what I call an, an ethics for Marxism. Uh, it's not a set of do's and don'ts so much as it is a, a, a regular reflection on what one's commitments are, how to strengthen those commitments, how to sustain them over the period of one's life, or pass them on to the next generation. Continuing with your approach to a Marxist ethics, you put Marx in dialogue with one of his contemporaries, the French physiolo physiologist Claude Bernard, Quoting lengthy passages from Capital, you argue that there are resources within Marx to think about the physiological implications of capitalism that you were just alluding to. 
on workers and their bodies, pointing towards what you call the homeostatic disruption of living labor. Can you give us a sense of what a Marxist theory of homeostasis might look like? Right. Well, um, Paul Bernard is is an interesting figure because, uh, to my knowledge, uh, and my research, uh, Marx and Engels never referred to him, although he was a very prominent uh, scientist uh, of the mid-19th century. he distinguished between what he called the external and internal milieus or environments. And uh, the internal milieu is one that he was uh, fascinated by how, uh, given stressors from the external uh, environment, organisms could maintain a kind of uh, of, uh, self-regulation, he didn't use the term homeostasis. Uh, that was a term coined by a very prominent American physiologist in the early 20th century named Walter Cannon, who also happened to be a socialist, interestingly. At least at one time, he was a non-communist a socialist and uh, 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 happened to be a friend of the uh, Russian behavioral uh, behaviorist uh, Pavlov, uh, interestingly. But Cannon... Uh, thought of homeostasis as a dynamic self-regulating of the organism. Uh, uh, and interestingly, too, in a new book by that just came out by Rupa Marya and Raj Patel called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, uh, they make a very detailed and expansive use of this idea of homeostasis. Um, they give the analogy of a tightrope walker losing and then regaling, regaining balance. So, uh, as the human body, or this is true of other organisms, as they deal with stressors from the external world, uh, there are ways of adjusting, adapting, um, or not, because there can be such serious disruption that it leads to the death of the organism, uh, or for human beings at least, there can be medical interventions or social ways of reducing stress. Obviously, a lot of the forms of stress are not purely from the natural world. They're mediated through social factors such as poverty, uh, unemployment, uh, uh, stresses within the workplace, which is what Marx and capital is especially concerned about, uh, racism, police brutality. All these stressors can disrupt one's uh, self-regulation at the level of, of of the body. Now, uh, Marx also uses the language of alienation, which uh, sort of is pointing in the same direction. But uh, what Marx uh, didn't do, not that he could have done everything, obviously, but what he didn't do was uh, ground uh, uh, his his view of moral moral degradation in 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 an account of of uh, human basic needs um, or what would be required for the flourishing of our, of, of our species, uh, both individually and, and collectively. So that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to do in that, in that uh, article. Um, I would say that uh, the Maria and Patel book uh, do a superb job, inflamed, in trying to apply this idea of homeostasis and disruption of homeostasis um, at the individual social and global levels and uh, 
So I would highly recommend people take a look at, uh, at that new book. Moving right along and turning to the Apostle Paul, who you spend a number of articles on, you follow a number of commentators, most notably Alain Bedou, in seeing Paul as a sort of political radical, critical of empire and large-scale destitution that it brings with it. But you also note how Paul's anti-imperialism brings with it its own imperial orientation, that it's not quite as much a step forward as a step sideways. Can you explain the difficulty here? Sure. Uh, an, an approach in New Testament studies that may come as a surprise to <clears throat> Marxists who are not conversant uh, with New Testament scholarship is uh, there's a great interest in trying to uh, root what uh, scholars call the Jesus movement uh, within its Roman imperial and uh, also first century Jewish uh, environment. Um, the Jesus movement, when looked at from that standpoint, whether we're talking about Jesus himself uh, or Paul, uh, it, it's it's a movement that's inclusive, that's egalitarian, that uses language that runs up against Roman imperial uh, the values of hierarchy, of peace with the threat of violence implicit within that, that sort of imposed uh, order. Um, if you look at, for example, the titles uh, attributed to Jesus, uh, many of them are titles that would have been associated with the Roman emperor. So ones like son of God, savior of the world, bringer of the peace, uh, uh, Messiah, which is uh, a term that has a, uh, a political connotation of one who is anointed for rule. Uh, you, you can get a sense in these titles that early followers of Jesus attributed to him that there was going to be a collision between such a movement and, uh, and Rome. Uh, Jesus is crucified as a threat to the Roman order. Uh, Paul winds up uh, probably executed during the reign of Nero. Uh, most of the early Christian leaders faced varying degrees of, of uh, social exclusion. The people who were attracted to the Jesus movement uh, tended to be marginal figures. Um, it was a movement that crossed borders. Paul himself, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, uh, third chapter of the letter to the Galatians, talks about uh, followers of Jesus being neither Greek nor Roman, slave or free, male or female. So there's, there's a, a kind of transgressive quality to the early Jesus movement, at least within the first generation or two. By the second century, third century, certainly by the time of Constantine and the fourth century, much of that radicalism was reabsorbed into the Roman hierarchy. There's a Christianizing of that anti-imperial, there's a Christianizing of Rome and there's a Romanizing of an anti-imperial movement. So for all of the radicalism of the early movement, there's not much that actually survives that Romanization process. Um, uh, another dramatic example of this is in the early movement, women were very much involved in the movement. We have names of some figures who were co-workers of Paul, people like Chloe and Phoebe, Lydia and Junia. The, these are, these are uh, 
individuals we don't know much about, except Paul refers to them in his letters. They had leadership positions. But by the second century, there is a uh, kind of conservative backlash in which early leaders of the movement um, by the second centuries are sort of toning down the danger of uh, uh, the threat to, to uh, uh, the peace. And uh, there's a kind of struggle for leadership within the second century. Um, now, the Jesus movement was not Spartacus. It was not a slave rebellion. And it was not, nor was it, <clears throat> which happened uh, 73 to 71 before the Common Era. And it wasn't the Jewish revolt of 66 to 73, which uh, failed and uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. And the aftermath is the uh, going in separate ways of both the, the Christian and Jewish, what becomes the Christian and Jewish traditions. Um, so when, when Marxists think of, of uh, Christianity, they have to distinguish the earliest stages. Uh, people like Engels and Luxembourg uh, tried to uh, take seriously the early radical phases of Christianity. They have to distinguish that from what becomes of Christianity, which has you know, undoubtedly largely become hierarchical. Uh, uh, there are exceptions, uh, liberation theologies and based Christian communities around the world retain that spirit of radicalism. Uh, leading biblical scholars, I think of Richard Horsley and Chad Myers, do very important work on radical discipleship and its present application uh, to social problems today. But Paul was not able to overcome the, uh, the limits of uh, the Roman imperial system. And he also had apocalyptic expectations that God would decisively intervene, which didn't happen. Uh, uh, Christians have been waiting for that divine intervention for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened. It doesn't stop uh, more conservative Christians from wishing it were so. But here we are with Christianity as it presently exists. And from my standpoint, it's interesting for Marxists then to go back and try to recover um, uh, uh, and to re-engage with the original impulse of the movement around Jesus in the first century. Yeah, in that uh, kind of Marxist materialist spirit, you again note a problem with the radical appropriations of Paul, namely that many will often try to extract a theoretical doctrine out of Paul without attentiveness to his practice. And to this end, you pay attention not just to the fact that he traveled around spreading the gospel, but the ways he tried to engage with various communities, tried to establish particular sorts of structures to help maintain the movement, recruited and cultivated a particular sort of cadre, all while self-financing by working as a tent maker. So can you tell us a bit about the day-to-day -day work of Paul that he was engaged in and what commentators miss when they ignore the on-the-ground practice? Right. Well, Paul is an interesting <clears throat> figure because <clears throat> he had uh, evidently initially been a uh, Hellenistic Jew, possibly born in Tarsus, which is in modern day on the coast of modern day Turkey, um, or at least grew up there. Uh, it's not clear whether he had Roman citizenship. Some scholars think yes, some uh, some not. He doesn't refer to citizenship in his letters. Uh, seven, which are undisputed, as associated with him, and other six 
probably or inspired by, but not directly written by Paul. Um, but Paul, Paul was a, was a Jew uh, uh, of the uh, mid first century. He was initially antagonistic to the movement around Jesus, the messianic movement around Jesus, and uh, it, it seems uh, uh, so strongly opposed that he uh, observed uh, a stoning of an early Christian leader, uh, Stephen, in Jerusalem. Um, but at some point becomes persuaded that Jesus's teachings mark a new departure uh, of uh, beyond uh, uh, Judaism to non-Jews. So there's a universalizing dimension to Paul, not to say that first century Judaism was not universalizing, but uh, the barrier to bringing people into a movement that Paul experienced was did they have to maintain specifically Jewish practices? And Paul's uh, conclusion after his conversion, or however we describe his experience, is that no, they can be, become part of a movement through open table fellowship, through baptism as an act of initiation. Um, so a, a movement that began within Judaism for social justice, for uh, the renewal of the Jewish covenant was then by Paul opened up to non-Jews and Christianity as it presently existed, uh, presently exists, uh, would not exist uh, uh, in the way that it does probably without Paul having that insight. Uh, obviously there've been people who say that's where Christianity goes, uh, <laughs> goes wrong. Uh, and Paul watered down or misunderstood Jesus's teachings. Um, but what, what, what did Paul do? Paul went to synagogues. He tried to persuade um, uh, non-Jews uh, uh, who attended synagogue services, uh, which we have a record of uh, uh, occurring, and persuade them to become part of this movement. He presumably discussed his perspective uh, in his work uh, activities uh, with uh, uh, clients and uh, associates, people just uh, uh, he ran into uh, in the context of his work as a tent maker. He was clearly not just going out on the street corner as you would find uh, you know, street evangelists today, haranguing passersby. Uh, even his letters are typically were not written as doctrinal statements. They're they're very provisional interventions to solve problems that were arising within these communities that he was beginning to set up. Uh, the Greek term for these communities, uh, ecclesia, is the word that is typically translated into modern English as church, but these were not church structures. Christianity was a marginal movement, and these are assemblies, gatherings of like-minded individuals that represent a broad spectrum of Greco-Roman uh, society um, it's an expanding without a rejection of, 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 of Judaism, in my view. Paul remained until his death a Jew, but he's forming new expanded communities, which are egalitarian, which are concerned with the redistribution, redistribution of, of, of wealth and envisioning a different kind of world that would be decisively different than the Roman Empire.
less violent, more peaceful and just. Uh, Paul is genuinely a cosmopolitan uh, who used uh, the empire in, in a way to spread his message. If it weren't for Roman roads, for example, he would, would, have, would not have been able to travel as broadly as he did from modern day Syria to Turkey, to Greece, to uh, eventually to Rome. Uh, he used uh, the system of roads to have these letters sent to uh, various communities. And so it's, it's those very complicated practices. Even the letters themselves are co-productions. They're not, they're typically dictated by Paul uh, to a secretary. And we have the name of the, one of those sec uh, secretaries, Tertius, uh, who transcribed Paul's dictation uh, in what becomes the letters to the Romans. So Paul is part of a movement. Um, uh, it's an egalitarian anti-imperial movement. He dies in the mid-60s uh, when uh, Nero uh, blames Messianic uh, Christians for the fire in Rome. And uh, that's what is often missing, I think, in philosophical in engagements with Paul. Uh, Badiou's book on Paul is very stimulating, but again, he doesn't uh, uh, stress the, uh, uh, the very interesting, complicated day-to-day -day practices of Paul or even the uh, co-production of letters. It's not as though Paul is just sitting down and formulating uh, a, a theoretical work. He's engaging in spirited polemics with other teachers, with trying to solve problems that arise within uh, communities over uh, uh, sharing of resources and uh, participating in common meals or other sort of uh, issues that arise on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's a really way, interesting way of looking at him. Um, continuing with your engagement with Paul, you turn to his thoughts on debt. Uh, so continuing with the early idea, earlier ideas you put forward with Paul as a radical critic of empire, you also find debt to be part of a larger critique of economic injustice. And what's more, when Paul speaks of debt, it's not meant as a sort of spiritual metaphor to alleviate guilt or cleanse us of our sin, as it's often kind of thought of today, but is instead, like the Old Testament's Jubilee, a much more grounded critique of the material conditions he inhabited and was working against. Can you unpack how debt functions in his thought? Sure. Again, again, uh, New Testament scholarship is, is pretty clear on Jesus and the movement that he helped organize. Um, it's a movement of radical redistribution of wealth. Uh, it's it's a, a movement in which debt cancellation is central uh, because the audience that Jesus is addressing are peasants, uh, artisans, uh, fishermen, uh, Sea of Galilee, uh, who are suffering from crushing taxes. Um, and this is not unique to Jesus. You see this in uh, John who is a precursor to Jesus as a, a, a figure who uh, has a vision of debt cancellation. Uh, even the idea of debt cancellation in the Hebrew scriptures is associated with the year of, of Jubilee. Every 50 years, 
uh, debts are to be forgiven and slaves are to be freed. Now, this is an ideal that scholars disagree how uh, consistently it uh, was carried out in practice. But it's, it's, it's an ideal that uh, uh, poverty is not a, uh, a fate uh, or punishment for wrongdoing. Uh, it is something which can be overcome. Uh, it can be challenged. Uh, but a movement is required to engage in uh, this uh, this challenge. Uh, Paul inherits this this orientation, and after Paul's calling or conversion, however we understand it, he met with the early Christian leaders, the so-called pillars in Jerusalem, and when he asked for permission to spread the Messianic movement to non-Jews, he was asked to remember the poor. Uh, and to gather a collection to return for uh, uh, those suffering from poverty in uh, Galilee and Judea. And this, this actually is a central function of what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to gather revenue to return for uh, uh, poverty relief. It's a redistributive campaign. Now, it, it, it's not as though Paul is uh, urging debt cancellation in the sense of refusing to pay taxes uh, or armed resistance. Again, he's not uh, advocating an uprising against Rome. And so, you know, uh, I, I can understand why a critic of Paul would say this is inadequate. It's uh, 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 it's not going to solve the problem of poverty. Uh, and in a way, that's quite true. Paul expected a kind of cosmic jubilee of debt forgiveness, a divine intervention, which didn't materialize. And personally, I don't think the, it, that, that will materialize it, and that that's really a, even a relevant uh, concern. Uh, the question is more, is poverty something which can be eliminated. Uh, Jesus and Paul, early Christians, think so. Can wealth be redistributed in a more egalitarian way? Paul, like Jesus, thinks so. And so there is at least a, a potentially a common ground for Marxists, uh, socialists, communists, anarchists, uh, and Christians who want to look carefully and critically at their own foundational texts. Moving forward and turning to the question of self-emancipation, you look briefly at an argument by Richard Rorty, where he said that the most important thing progressives can do today is not try and build power from below, but instead transform the sentiments of the leisure class so as to make the world a little less cruel. So on its face, this seems like an odd idea to have even among non-Marxists, but a, that a better world is only possible if we convince those in power to be a little nicer. That seems odd when phrased so concisely and bluntly, but I think it's worth unpacking this idea a bit, if only because it seems to be the implicit view many people hold today, even if they wouldn't phrase it quite that way. Can you give us a sense of Rorty's view here and the challenge that he raises? Sure. <clears throat> 
I, I, I don't want to be too harsh about Richard Rorty, who was an extremely important philosopher um, and uh, what I would regard as an egalitarian liberal. Um, he was trying to find, in his 1993 Amnesty International uh, lecture, um, an alternative way to ground a commitment to human rights than um, focusing as Marxists uh, would, socialists in general, or most people on the left would, uh, focused on movements from below making demands. Uh, so he, in this lecture, favors a kind of a sentimental education of desires from above. He talks about how patriotism, and in other writings as well, um, can be reconstrued to encourage support for one's compatriots. Um, I, I think he's wrong to think of internationalism as a watering down of commitment to one's compatriots. I mean, I certainly think you can both care about a more just United States as well as a more just Western hemisphere or world. Um, so in, in, in a sense, you know, I, 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 I want to appreciate uh, Rorty as a philosopher who has a good heart, a good liberal. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his father was uh, farther on the left. If I believe he was a member of the Communist Party. So it could be there's a personal dimension to why Rorty thinks that uh, a Marxist approach is not going to be successful because it pitches success too high. And Rorty is a typical reformer who thinks, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, he's also, in this particular amnesty lecture, he's a product of a particular conjuncture, which is, uh, this is the beginning of the Bill Clinton years and trying to find a, a third way uh, uh, both with Clinton and Tony Blair in Britain. Um, um, I, I, I think it, it, when I wrote this piece, uh, I think people were seeing uh, perhaps uh, Barack Obama in much the same light as uh, Bill Clinton. Let's give him a chance. And uh, uh, if you have a Democratic president, that things can get a little bit better. And you have to have trust that they have our interests, working class people's interests at heart. Um, so I, I, I think my own my own interest in Rorty, when I read that amnesty lecture, was to say that this this is a recurrent problem on the liberal left. Um, that change can and even should come from experts uh, uh, in the labor movement, from the labor bureaucracy. Um, and in my experience, that that, is, that it has rarely progressive change has rarely occurred in that way, uh, despite Rorty's claims that, that good things can come from above. Uh, example for me, uh, at a small faculty union, local, uh, but this is relevant, I think, to other uh, labor struggles. Uh, you you could have the best crafted arguments at the bargaining table uh, in labor negotiations. And they're probably going to fall on deaf ears unless you have pressure away from the table through a contract campaign. Um, 
you need to use on a regular basis, even when you do have a collective bargaining agreement, the threat of grievances and uh, pressuring for contract enforcement. Um, the, the idea that just well-trained leaders are somehow going to solve your problems uh, without mobilizing the ranks is, is simply doesn't correspond to any reality that I've experienced. So I was uh, interested in Rorty partly because I, I also think, though, that uh, uh, there is no firm foundation in human nature for uh, social change. Uh, he's right in a way to be a non-foundationalist about the basis of that change. But where he's wrong is to think that changes can be sort of trickled down from above. And he's saying this from the left, from the liberal left. Uh, uh, my experience, at least, has been even uh, uh, somewhat limited changes require tremendous pressure uh, mass participation, and so it's it's. I, I I say it's a friendly disagreement. I I I would regard Rorty or liberals as, you know, wrong-headed uh, or somewhat utopian, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, uh, not able to achieve the very sentimental education that they think they can accomplish. That that has never been my experience, at least in labor negotiations or contract enforcement. You need as many people as possible to be involved in the decision-making process. There is a role for leadership, but the, the change in the sentiments comes from people experiencing real struggles. And uh, for Rorty, the, the idea that uh, that education comes from struggles from below is simply simply missing from his account. Yeah, so against that idea of how social change should come about, um, you've been articulating this idea of uh, power from below. Now, many are happy to pull maybe a couple quotes from Marx, Lenin, or Trotsky to justify their views and move on, but you try and develop a philosophical argument that true emancipation means self-emancipation. Can you uh, unpack that argument for us? Sure. The, the political tradition that I became involved in, I didn't realize it uh, uh, as much at the time as I do in retrospect, uh, was, uh, it remains very much at, at the center of my thinking about uh, uh, philosophy, uh, philosophy as Marxists engage in it. Uh, that, that tradition was framed by Hal Draper, especially the two souls of socialism is a pamphlet that he wrote, I believe in the mid sixties, if I'm not mistaken. And the organizations that I belong to, um, workers power and then solidarity were, were very deeply influenced that we, we had at that time, uh, the historian Bob Renner was very active in my branch in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, other figures like Kim Moody was based in Detroit and the Labor Notes uh, project. And the stress on self-emancipation was seen as a primarily seen as a strategic matter. You're more successful to win victories. Um, the path to uh, a socialist society 
is through involving as many people as possible from below. Leadership has to be accountable, uh, not trusting uh, the labor bureaucracy and so forth. So I, I, I've inherited that kind of tradition and that way of seeing the world from a strategic standpoint. I, 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 I remain committed to that. But what was rarely discussed is why should we care? <laughs> why should we uh, uh, value this tradition uh, from a moral perspective? And I think it is worth valuing from a moral perspective. And so the article that you're referring to in the book on self-emancipation is trying to understand self-emancipatory movements in a more general sense than just working, pla working class self-emancipation. Uh, any movement of the oppressed towards its own uh, liberation, its own freedom, has to come from below to preserve the dignity of the individuals, uh, to avoid uh, the idea of, of saviors from above, uh, it is a more reliable path, so I think, again, strategically, that's an approach that I would politically endorse, but it also preserves the dignity of the individual. Uh, you're not dependent on the good graces of, some, good graces of someone else. Uh, women have to free themselves, even if men are allies of women in struggle. Uh, people of color have to free themselves from oppression, although they need allies as well. Uh, the working class needs allies. Any oppressed group needs allies. But the dynamic, the initiative is self-emancipatory at a very deep ethical level is, 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 my, uh, is my position. And I give a series of kind of analytical Marxist arguments towards that end. Uh, one of the arguments which I've already referred to is the idea that in emancipatory movements, participants educate themselves. They don't, they're not told what to do. They learn how to organize in the process of the struggle itself. And that is a more lasting, significant influence on their lives than if some expert, some you know, professional organizer, no matter how devoted, no matter how talented, just you know, bestows it upon them. It has to come from below. There are exceptions i suppose um you know there, there might be emergency situations I, I allow for that in this uh, uh in this chapter of my book um obviously a situation of, of uh, grave uh, harm or violence might require some sort of intervention not at the level of the state presumably but uh, through some sort of solidarity uh, movement uh, i, I uh, I think of, for example, um, in the Spanish Civil War, the, uh, the the brigades, Abraham Lincoln Brigade from the United States, and but other brigades from around Europe, who went to fought on the side of the loyalists. So um, that is not their contribution is not self-emancipatory, but it, it is supportive of self-emancipation. So the. There would be exceptions uh, to this, but again, my point would be the general rule is that no savior, and this, this even applies, I, I would stress, to religious conceptions. Uh, 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 Martin Luther King Jr. 
in his letter from Birmingham jail was, was very clear that uh, God or Jesus is not going to intervene to save you from racism and racial oppression. Uh, one needs to be a co-worker, a partner participant in that cause. So whether it's a secular or religious perspective on, on, on social change, uh, it's not just a matter of what the correct strategy is. It's, it's, a, it's a normative argument that self-emancipation is the only morally defensible way of bringing about freedom for an oppressed group. So for a lot of people, the point you've brought us up to is where philosophical inquiry will often end and the only real questions left are seen as logistical ones of how the working class should organize itself and work towards an emancipated classless society. But you still see a role for philosophers and intellectuals, albeit one much more marginal than someone like Richard Rorty might believe in and one where intellectuals need to make their contributions, albeit with deep care and humility, um, and recognize that their work is not above the struggle, but intertwined with it. Can you explain the role intellectuals ought to play in emancipatory movements here? Well, here, here's again, coming back to Paul. Paul functions as a, as a kind of organic uh, intellectual, to use Gramsci's, Antonio Gramsci's uh, terminology. He tries to bring people together within an inclusive egalitarian movement. Um, he reformulates concepts um, in an urban context that are, arose in the earliest stage of the Jesus movement in a rural context. So he's a kind of a mediator of Judaism to non-Jews. Uh, he intervenes in conflicts that arise within communities. He's a generalizer of of concepts of, of, of Jewish purity law. He brackets out, but introduces, say, uh, uh, open meal, table fellowship, uh, baptism as new kinds of rituals. Uh, so I, I, I see philosophers from Paul to the present as mediators, interveners, generalizers, creators of new concepts, uh, uh, taking concepts from one domain or a domain outside of Marxism, let's say, and uh, revitalizing Marxism uh, in light of that concept. A lot of the eco-Marxist uh, work by people like John Bellamy Foster, Andreas Malm, uh, Ian Angus are taking scientific research into uh, 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 ecological crises and seeing how they overlap with economic crises. Uh, so there's, there's a lot for philosophers to do, but not to stand outside of or above the struggle, but to be participators within the struggle. Um, Paul, for me, is exemplary, although, again, that would strike uh, most of my comrades as uh, maybe counterintuitive. But you can see in the 19th century United States, this sort of process of uh, engaged intellectuals not st stepping outside or standing outside of the, uh, the struggle, uh, whether it's the transcendentalism movement or abolitionist movement, people like Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth, John Brown, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, 
George Ripley and the Utopian Community Experiment, Experiment to Brook Farm, uh, early feminists like Margaret Fuller. I mean, you've got a wide range of intellectuals in that early to mid 19th century that I think are, you know, this is the same, they overlap with, with Marx and Engels who functioned in that way in the first international and then Engels in the second international. Um, I don't think Marx and Engels stood outside of the struggle. Lenin, Trotsky didn't stand outside of the struggle. Gramsci didn't stand outside of the struggle. Rosa Luxemburg didn't. So we have a whole history of Marxist intellectuals. Um, if academics in their own work want to function uh, in uh, uh, play a role in emancipatory movements, they can certainly do so in terms of uh, their own union work. I know, unfortunately, a lot of academics who poo-poo faculty union organizing because it's not as uh, significant as large-scale struggles. Uh, but it's ex extremely important and valuable experience. It's a very humbling experience so for someone like me coming out of philosophy, having confidence in good arguments and reasoning, and then you're at a... a in a collective bargaining, negotiating situation at the table, those arguments fall on deaf ears. What's, what's needed is pressure away from the table, as I mentioned a few minutes uh, ago. So uh, it's not just what intellectuals contribute to struggles, it's what intellectuals can learn in the process of participating in these struggles. And they can be very modest struggles. Uh, uh, and obviously, you do what you're able to do within limits, and people have a variety of commitments. But um, uh, philosophers need to get out of the classroom and uh, not necessarily directly into the streets, but they have to understand their work environment. And um, unions, for most philosophers, are very important laboratories of the development of their own philosophical ideas and concepts. Turning to the issue of climate change, you look at some of the challenges to organizing around the issue, pointing at arguments that a major difficulty lies in how we are wired to deal with issues that are being done intentionally and in our immediate vicinity, meaning that climate change may be too abstract for us to really deal with. And you argue that, however, that these arguments, while seeming sympathetic to the cause of curbing climate change, they're really part of a large tradition of doubt-mongering and subtly but surely make change seem so difficult as to seem impossible. Can you explain how these arguments about some you know, vague allusion to human nature can be misleading in how they get us to think about the issue? Well, the, the philosopher who probably has had the biggest influence on me in, uh, in terms of how we understand human nature is Norman Garras, who was uh, uh, a political scientist, a uh, British political scientist, who uh, among some of my uh, comrades is known for his uh, strenuous criticisms of uh, Louis Althusser. And uh, I'll leave that sort of <laughs> uh, polemical side of Garras uh, aside uh, for the moment. But what, what, what Garris argued in a number of places that, that I think is uh, very compelling is that human nature uh, is mixed, malleable, depending on how movements and social orders are organized. 
Um, so there's, there's no fixed human nature. Uh, uh, with respect to climate change, for example, how we escape this present climate emergency uh, is, is not, to my mind, exactly uh, clear. Uh, the institutional uh, obstacles are incredibly great, but I'm less interested in those obstacles than I am how people can reflect on what their desires, commitments, hopes are, how they can harness anger in a productive way. Um, th these are philosophical tasks that I'm personally interested in more than the economics of a viable Green New Deal or the political problem of how you organize uh, effective uh, climate uh, movements. Uh, I have students who are very involved and uh, the climate justice movement and sunshine, uh, sun, sunrise movement. Um, I find that very inspiring, but there is, in any movement I've been involved in, the problem of burnout, the problem of how to have very passionate engagement, but a willingness to see the ups and downs of the struggle don't lead necessarily to permanent defeat. And, and yet there's, in, in the case of the climate emergency, an urgency that we have a decade really to get our act together globally. Um, and so how do, we, how, how do we find the moral resources uh, to take that on, to put capitalism front and center as the overriding problem? Um, I don't pretend to have the answer uh, to this, but... Um, uh, it's, it's not in our nature that we are going to be uh, successful or defeated. It's an open, it's an open question. It, it really depends on building a movement, building a mass movement, linking the climate emergency to other associated problems with, with, with capitalism, poverty, inequality, uh, oppression, exploitation. And, and so in that, in that sense, for me, philosophically, um, there is not a solution that is going to come about just through you know, the expertise coming from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the United Nations, or heads of state. It, it really is a way of seriously reflecting on the nature of a good life, uh, the willingness to share, to build new communities, these transformations that have to come from below, even though we need, obviously, treaties that are global in scope, and we need good leaders, uh, not to name any particular names, but you know, people like Bernie Sanders, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Rashida Tlaib, I mean, Ilan Omar, you need good leadership, but even good leaders, if we're gonna find a way out of this problem, are gonna have are going to have to be pressured relentlessly over the next decade. Moving further along, you argue that climate change requ requires large-scale collective action, which you've been alluding to, but this is easier said than done for a number of reasons. Logistically, it obviously is harder to get more people working together, but there are also certain ideological barriers and dead ends many people get stuck on where they struggle to even think about collective action instead opting for the familiarity of things like individual habits, 
eco-friendly consumerism or just abstention from consumption, all of which might help but are nowhere near enough to tackle the problem. Can you explain how these dead ends function? Well, I identify in in uh, the chapter of the book we're talking about um, a, a number of obstacles to building uh, a climate justice movement. Uh, I won't elaborate on all of them, but one basic problem is moving from an identification of one's own concerns uh, within a household, within a neighborhood, to a broader collective understanding. So that the, the, the issue of moving from an I identification to a we identification, um, I don't think there's any magic uh, solution uh, to that. Uh, these are not just abstractions. These are building new kinds of communities. Um, back to, again to Paul. Paul wasn't particularly worried about uh, climate change, obviously, in the first century, although uh, the Romans did, through their mining practices, uh, devastate whole regions of, of modern-day Spain and of uh, modern-day Jordan. They, you, you see uh, uh, sites of Roman mining that are polluted since the uh, uh, first century to the present. Uh, but yeah, Paul is, is and, I, and I think any, uh, any Marxist should be trying to find a language, trying to find a means to express uh, not just that we ought to identify with other people, but how we are, uh, our problems uh, overlap or intersect. So the perspective of intersectionality with respect to gender, sexual orientation, race, class, ability, disability. This is a political, sociological uh, uh, perspective that I find very fruitful. But from a normative standpoint, uh, this takes us into the terrain of what my, my uh, good friend and comrade Jason Reed and Etienne Balibar, who's his inspiration, talk about as trans-individuality. How do I think of myself, not just as an isolated individual, but as already, always already linked to other individuals? And that's not easily done. If, if you've been to a demonstration, you somewhat have this experience or some, uh, some rally. There's, there's a kind of uh, broadening of moral horizon when you uh, look amongst yourselves and see the, the diversity of people or, or sometimes a lack of diversity in the, in the crowd. Um, so how do I move from this I identification to a we identification. Um, that was even Bernie Sanders' uh, slogan. I, 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 I supported Bernie Sanders during his campaign. I have ambivalence about his, uh, his role in uh, leadership, as I would for any leader. But how do we see ourselves as something larger than who we are? Uh, that's, that's one problem to building a successful movement, whether it's on the scale of an individual workplace how do I think of myself as part of a union, uh, as union brothers and sisters, rather than just my own separate problem uh, as an employee? That's, that's, that, that's a very important obstacle to overcome. There's also the, an important obstacle, which is of what philosophers call moral weakness. Uh, moral weakness arises when you make a commitment and then fail 
to act upon or in accordance with that commitment. Uh, obviously, this happens all the time at an individual level, uh, but it also happens when promises are broken by leadership, when leadership don't remain accountable to the ranks within a union, when uh, leaders are elected and don't try at least to deliver on the platform that they've pledged to uphold. How do we solve the problem of moral weakness? I, I, it's not easily solved. It's a dynamic that uh, uh, Aristotle was worried about, uh, Paul was worried about. Paul actually talks about moral weakness using the term hamartia, which is interestingly translated as sin, but it means something like missing the mark, uh, falling short of what one intended to do. Uh, so it's not that Paul is talking about sinfulness as a uh, 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 irreversible fault or flaw, but the tendency we all have to fall short of goals that we set for ourselves, um, promises we make to others, platforms we pledge to uphold. Uh, I don't confess, again, to know the answer to how we move from moral weakness to moral strength, other than in building movements that do really include as many people as possible, that address their real needs and concerns, that give them voice. In the, uh, the demonstrations in Egypt in 2011, there was a phrase that really registered with me, which I think speaks to this. And the phrase was, we gave each other courage. And you do see this in social movements uh, that take great risks, that run the risk of burning people out, of having people betray the cause, or of just slowly drifting away from a cause. So how do we give each other courage? That, that uh, other article on fortitude, this would be Spinoza's, Baruch de Spinoza's way of talking about uh, moral strength. I think it's an important issue that has been largely overlooked. You know, uh, traditionally the working class once it realizes its, uh, its interests will act upon them and uh, uh, oppose the ruling class uh, and uh, you hope be successful rather than defeated. But that's, that's too quick a move. It's much more complicated matter of saying, even if you can realize your class interests, how do you sustain those interests over the course of a life, over the course of an historical moment, how do you pass on that commitment or series of commitments to the next generation? None of this is easy. Um, in the context of the climate uh, uh, justice movement, what really impressed me was Greta Thunberg's uh, uh, discussion of what she calls her superpower. Uh, she has Asperger's uh, syndrome. But she sees that not as a, a, a fault, but a superpower that enables her, she says, to focus on an issue for a very long time. And that's, what's, that's, uh, that's what a good militant, a good activist, a good organizer is, someone who can focus on an issue for a very long time. And you hope be successful through good strategy and tactics, but there's no guarantee that you will be successful. Uh, and so there's a modesty e even in the face of this uh, 
emphasis on dedication to a cause. That cause may not be successful. We may not be able to stop irreversible climate change. We do know that if we don't struggle with everything that we have at our disposal, uh, we, we do know if we don't do that, we will not be successful. Yeah, you've kind of been alluding and stepping into my final question. I wanted to ask, um, and you've alluded to this throughout uh, this episode, so I kind of want to hone in on a, a little bit. A personal issue many people will no doubt encounter uh, when engaged in political activism of any sort uh, is the challenge. There's this challenge of sustaining one's engagement over a long period of time, even a lifetime for a lot of people. Uh, some might cultivate a sort of hope. Others might have to depend on some sort of anger, which interestingly, you don't try and dismiss wholeheartedly. You, you're open to certain elements or aspects of that, um, but still others will find other ways and reasons. But I want to ask what philosophy has to offer here, particularly regarding some of its oldest questions regarding who we are and how we ought to live. What can organizers in the struggle expect to gain from engaging with philosophy that will help them sustain their work and commitments? Well, this is a maybe a good question to, uh, uh, to end on. Um, I would I would see anger as an important element, uh, not an anger that's uh, all-consuming rage, but a righteous indignation. Uh, Spinoza uses the language of indignation to express uh, opposition to social uh, oppression. Um, but for Spinoza, anger remains a somewhat passive expression of opposition. Hope is a more positive expression, but hope can be betrayed. Hope can be false and manipulated. And I think that was the experience of many people who look to, whether it was Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders, you, you might be filled with hope that they can bring about changes, but that is to misrecognize the concrete nature of hope. As Ernst Bloch, the great German Marxist philosopher, stressed, we need to distinguish between abstract or false hopes on the one hand, illusory hopes, and a savior who is going to intervene at the last minute to rescue us from our bad behavior. Uh, concrete hope is something that we fashion ourselves in community with others. We need good practical reasoning and strategic uh, elements. Um, but the real question, as you uh, have pointed out, is how do we sustain this over a long period of time, a lifetime? Uh, how do we sustain this intergenerationally? I have a teenage son. He's a socialist, at least at this point in his life. I would like to think that has some uh, some connection to our discussions. Uh, uh, um, uh, but I don't. I don't really know that philosophy can give the answers. Philosophy poses these questions, and the posing of the questions uh, themselves. Uh, I think, point in, in a direction that is a, an important one for the left. The, the left has to retain a spirit of openness, of questioning, even questioning of one's own privileged texts and traditions. Um, there's a recent book by Martin Hogland, who's a, a philosopher 
who published a book called This Life, which is a very impressive work. Um, and he argues that we need, in part, to rediscover uh, secular commitments and to call into question uh, religious, otherworldly uh, loyalties. I'm not sure I agree with that, however. Um, he thinks religious faith is a flight into transcendence. It's otherworldly. It is not able to address the uh, crises that we face uh, within the world at present. But I guess for me and my interests in, in uh, uh, Paul and the New Testament, but I think you would find this within Buddhist texts, within other sacred texts and traditions around the world. The concern is not about life after death. Uh, uh, the concern is life before death. What do we make of our life, given that we are finite, given that we, each of us, will die? How can we play a part in bringing about a better world into the next generation? Uh, Samuel Scheffler is a contemporary American philosopher who wrote a very interesting book called Death and the Afterlife, which suggests the reason that we engage in these commitments, that we pursue these loyalties to the next generation and to the future, it's not so much even for their sake. They don't yet exist. We do it for our own sake. Uh, if we, through an interesting thought experiment, knew that the next generations would not survive, that humanity itself would disappear, that our species would become extinct, uh, uh, that would pose a problem not just to them and to future generations. That would pose a problem for our own projects in the here and now. So we have to be committed to future generations to deepen our own projects, our own concerns. So uh, again, it's not that we worry about future generations for their sake. We worry about future generations for our own sake. And we have to be able to, on the left, not just talk about you know, uh, uh, a, a struggle to replace capitalism with socialism or eco-socialism. We have to talk about why doing that is at the very heart of what it means to be a human being today. I mean, it's, it's, it's an existential uh, 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 question that we, we pose. And, that, and that's what, from my standpoint, philosophy has to offer. It's not giving answers. It's posing the question, what it means to lead a human life in the here and now. Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, so... As a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Well, as, as, as I said, I'm continuing to do work on the New Testament. Um, I'm, I'm interested in another dimension of, uh, of uh, New Testament uh, 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 theology, which is uh, how spirit is understood. And... I think for most materialist uh, philosophers or Marxists, uh, spirit would be a non-starter. But if you look at how spirit is understood in uh, the Gospel of John and uh, the book of Luke and Acts, you see, and, and in Paul's letters, it has a kind of dynamic of, of uh, inspiring, unifying, movement building. So I'm working on something called the spirit of the movement, which is a way of trying to stress, again, some features of the early Jesus movement that might be 
useful from the standpoint of building uh, contemporary uh, social justice movements. The, the other thing I'm interested in and uh, doing some uh, research on is the overlap between American transcendentalism, especially uh, the writings of Henry David Thoreau and uh, the 19th century abolitionist movement and how Marxists can benefit their, from uh, that study. There have been very few uh, Marxist philosophers who've looked at transcendentalism. Uh, it's seen as not as interesting as, say, Hegel or Kant or uh, uh, Marx himself, but it's, uh, it's uh, the theory that was drawn upon by many abolitionists and it has a lot of these common features that you would find in, uh, in Marxism, a con commitment to organic intellectuals and movement building. So that's, uh, that's another project that uh, I'll be working on for, for a few years to come. Yeah, that all sounds fascinating. So looking forward to it. So in the meantime, Ted Stoles, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Stephen. I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you, and uh, I really enjoyed the, uh, the uh, probing questions that you raised.